And tonight we're wrapping up our series on what it means to be God's watchman. Wrapping up this series we've called Watch Out, where we've talked about how we're tasked with warning other people with the gospel. And I hope this series has, has kind of helped you consider your participation in God's mission of reaching the world with the good news of the gospel. Because understanding our role as watchmen has led us to see that there's danger coming to those who don't believe and accept the gospel. Hopefully that's abundantly clear by now. We've talked about it every week. But because of their sin, there are billions of people who are going to end up in hell for eternity, separated from God and everything he wanted for them. But man, in an effort to prevent that, God sends us as his watchmen to warn them about that coming judgment so that those people can do something about it. And those of us who have accepted Jesus' payment for our sins have been forgiven, so we have no coming judgment for our sins that we need to be afraid of. Our sins have already been paid for and dealt with. Praise the Lord. It's a fantastic thing. But now that that's the case, God has tasked us with taking the message of his gospel, the same gospel that saved us when we accepted it. It's our job uh, to share that, that news with others. And throughout this series, we've talked about why that's so important. We talked about our duty and our responsibility to be obedient in living out this role that God's given us. And we've talked about having the right perspective in our life so that we can focus on that. We've talked about how to diligently live that out in our lives. But tonight, as we wrap up this study, we're going to examine why it's so important that we don't waste any time getting started. Uh, because tonight we're talking about watching with urgency. Because the truth is, we're, we're running out of time. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, if you haven't already. That's where we're going to be tonight. But in our passage tonight, Paul is addressing the group of believers at the Thessalonian church. And these believers are, are fairly new believers. Most of them haven't been saved for very long by the time Paul writes this letter. But in chapters 4 and 5, Paul's letting them know about some things that, that they have to look forward to from the Lord. And here at the beginning of chapter 5, we see something that the believers could look forward to, but the lost people couldn't look forward to. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 6. It says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For, your, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So Paul's telling us as believers here that we should be aware of what time it is because the day of the Lord is coming. And while the coming of the day of the Lord is something that you and I get to look forward to, we just sang about it. That's not the case for everyone. And as we really dig into this passage tonight, we're going to see why it's so important that we watch with urgency, why we have to be careful that we don't waste any more time than we already have because our time is not unlimited and we're, we're running out of it quickly. And so, fair warning, tonight we're, we're going to get into a bit of a Bible study to see exactly what Paul's saying here, so buckle up. Ready? Yes. All right, let's pray. Let's pray before we dig in. God, I just pray that you make clear to us tonight what, what your word is trying to communicate to our lives, and I pray that uh, through this uh, study, Lord, we just see how urgent it is that we share the gospel and not waste time, and that we take every opportunity we can uh, to, to just invest into the life of other people, to, to help them understand who you are and, 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 and what your love for them really looks like so that they can respond to the gospel the same way we have. We love you, Lord, and just ask that you be with us tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
All right, let's dig into our first point. Point number one, it's time to watch. And that's what we see in verses one through three. Uh, Verse one, again, says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And so there are two main things that I want to make sure we don't miss from these verses. And the first one is letter A. We should know what time it is. That's why he tells the Thessalonians that they have no need that he write unto them about the times and the seasons. Because they should already know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night and that it's coming sooner rather than later. And that's important for us to see because note here that Paul is writing to brethren. He's writing to Christian people in a church. And if we pay attention to what the Bible tells us, we're brethren too. Well, we should be aware that we're currently living during the night. That's the time in which we live. Jesus tells us in John 4, or John 9, 4 through 5, he says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Verse 5, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Don't miss this. Jesus is the light of the world, so while he's in the world, it's daytime in the world. And he was letting them know in John 9 that there was coming a time when he wouldn't be in the world anymore. And that obviously happened after he was killed, buried, and rose again from the grave. He ascended back into heaven. The light of the world left the world. Yes, he left the Holy Spirit in the world when he left, but Jesus was no longer here physically. So when Jesus left the light of the world left, so night began. And that night doesn't end until the day of the Lord, which is yet future. It's still coming. And Paul's telling us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that the day of the Lord is on its way. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, in case you're unaware, let's let's talk about that for just a moment. But before we do, let me remind you of what 2 Peter 3, 8 says. It says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. So make sure you get this. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, we have to be aware that it's not just referring to a single 24-hour day. We can see this day of the Lord in Revelation 20. This, we'll see that it's a thousand years. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, Neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Well, the day of the Lord is Jesus Christ's 1,000-year reign on earth as king, and the Bible talks about this exhaustively. You You could say it's the theme of the entire Bible, if you were so inclined, but it's what everything in history has been building towards since the very beginning. Jesus Christ, king of the universe, ruling and reigning on earth from a real city on a real throne, in a very real way. And if you look at the verses prior in Revelation 20, you'll see that Satan is actually bound in the bottomless pit for those thousand years. That's what's coming. It's, it's the culmination of everything the Bible talks about. It's the culmination of history in, in one kingdom where Jesus is ruling for a thousand years. That's what Paul's talking about when he says the day of the Lord is coming. But also notice that Paul describes how it comes. It comes as a thief in the night. So the coming of the day of the Lord is going to be mostly unexpected. Think about it. A thief doesn't call you up on your phone and 
let you know that they're going to break in your house and steal some stuff. That's, that's not what thieves do. They just sort of sneak in. They try to be quiet. So it shouldn't surprise us in Matthew 24 that Jesus says in verse 36, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And verse 37 says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So before you go trying to tell people that you know for sure when Jesus is coming back, just realize that we don't know the day or the hour. That doesn't mean we have no idea when it will happen, but, but we just can't say for sure. Because even though we don't know the day or the hour, we should be aware of the times and the seasons. That's what Paul is telling us in our passage tonight in 1 Thessalonians 5. So without having to pick a date on the calendar, we can look at biblical details and and point to the or biblical details that point to the coming of the Lord. Jesus gives his disciples some of those details earlier in Matthew 24. Uh, just look at verses 3 through 8. It says, And he, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So they're asking him a question about what the end of the world's going to look like. What's the sign of your coming going to be? Well, verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. So the things Jesus is describing here aren't describing the end, he specifically says in verse 6, the end is not yet. These are the things that are happening just before the end. That's what he's describing. These events, the wars, the rumors of wars, the famines, the pestilences, the earthquakes, the false Christs, man, those are just the beginning of sorrows. And I realize his descriptions of those events are pretty vague, but as vague as they might be, a quick survey of history suggests that those things are far more common today than they have been in years and centuries prior, at least when you look at all of those events happening at, at a similar time. So my point is, if you pay attention to biblical details and signs that point us to the end, it sure seems like we're getting close. And personally, I struggle to picture the world continuing on the course it's on for much longer. It just seems like the world is on a path to destroy itself. But man, the Bible's clear that, that God's the one who will actually destroy the world. Oh, as weird as that might sound, 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10 says, "'The Lord is not slack concerning his promise,' as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You see that phrase again. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So our world doesn't get destroyed until the day of the Lord. And, and actually, if you dig into it, the destruction is at the end of the day of the Lord, at the end of Christ's uh, 1,000 year reign on earth. But ultimately, we don't know exactly when the day of the Lord will come. It wouldn't be coming as a thief in the night if we did. So we know that his coming will be unexpected by many, but we can be certain that his coming is getting close. Uh, the more you dig into the biblical details, man, it, it's just getting closer and closer. That's a good thing for us. But the coming of the day of the Lord will not be a pleasant thing for many people. And that brings us to the second group of people we have to look at tonight with letter B. Many will not know what time it is. And we can see that in verse 3 of our passage tonight. And we can specifically see that because the pronouns Paul is using 
change from verses 1 and 2 to verse 3. In verses 1 and 2, he's using second-person plural pronouns. You see ye, you see you, you see yourselves. He's talking to the believers. But you get to verse 3, he switches to third-person plural pronouns with words like they and them, talking about a different group of people. So who is the they in verse 3 referring to? Who's the, the group of people he's talking about? That's an important question to ask. Man, when you're studying the Bible, you want to make sure you know who or what pronouns are referring to so that you can understand what's going on. Well, the answer to that question isn't readily apparent in chapter 5 because you don't see a group of people mentioned apart from the believers he's talking to. But if you go back into chapter 4, I think you find the answer in verse 13. First uh, Thessalonians 4.13 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. And grammatically, that makes the most sense because the others which have no hope is the most recent plural group of people that Paul mentions before using third-person plural pronouns like they and them in chapter 5. But it doesn't just make sense grammatically, it makes sense biblically too, because in chapter 4, the reason why these others don't have hope is because they don't have Jesus. And that makes sense because we do have hope because we have Jesus. Because we have Jesus, we don't have to fear death or separation from God. That's the point Paul is making throughout chapter 4. But in chapter 5, Paul's saying that these people which have no hope, these people who don't know Jesus, they're going to have to face destruction at the coming of the day of the Lord. These are lost people, people who haven't given their life to Christ and haven't had their sins paid for. These are people that the coming of the day of the Lord will really catch off guard. They'll be saying peace and safety, and bam, sudden destruction comes upon them. Now, it doesn't say that they'll be experiencing peace and safety. It just says they'll be saying peace and safety. So make, make of that what you will. But either way, when they least expect it, destruction comes for them, and they can't escape it. And the clause that says, as travail upon a woman with child in our passage, that really clues us in on what this destruction is referring to. Because in the Bible, a woman with child who's in travail is about to give birth to the child. Uh, you can look at the first mention of the word travail in the Bible, Genesis 38, 27. It says, And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in the womb. So a woman in travail with child, she, she's in labor. The baby's on its way. And when you're in labor and the baby's on its way, there ain't no stopping that baby, um, at, least, at least what I'm told. Uh, one way or another, the baby's coming out. Um, and I'm told, I'm told that's a very painful process. I wouldn't know, nor will I ever have to know from experience. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but I understand and believe the concept because the Bible tells me that's the case. Psalm 48.6 says, Fear took hold upon them there in pain as of a woman in travail. And the Bible is good enough for me. I believe it's painful. Um, it's, the Bible's clear, you know, it's painful. I don't need to understand the level of pain we're talking about. The Bible tells me it's, it's good. I don't, I don't need to worry about that. That said, because Paul compared this destruction in verse 3 with travail upon a woman with child, the Bible's pointing us to Revelation 12, which pictures and describes a very specific period of time that hasn't happened yet. Revelation 12, 1 through 6, is what this phrase is pointing us to. It says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, 
and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven, t- seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And if you carefully break that picture down, we'll see that this is picturing a time that we refer to as the tribulation. Because the child is clearly Jesus, who will rule all nations with a rod of iron one day, but was caught up to God in the meantime. Um, the woman is a little trickier. You might think she's Mary because Mary was the mother of Jesus and this lady gave birth to Jesus. But none of these events actually fit Mary's life. She never had to flee alone into the wilderness or be fed miraculously for, three, or for, for 1,203 score days. You might think this, this woman is a, is a picture of the church. And keep in mind, you know, verse 1 of this, of this chapter uh, he's writing, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven. So what we're seeing is a picture of something else. Um, so you might think that this woman is a picture of the church or Christians, but, but you'd be wrong there too. Jesus started the church with his disciples. The church never gave birth to Jesus. It didn't exist when Jesus was born. Plus, the church is referred to as a virgin bride, as the bride of Christ. So the church can't give birth to anything until we're one with Jesus. But the real answer is that this woman pictures the nation of Israel from whom Jesus was born. And this becomes incredibly clear when you compare the description of her from verse 1 to other parts of Scripture. She's clothed with the sun, the moon's under her feet, and she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. So with that in mind, take a look at Joseph's dream in, in Genesis 37. Genesis 37, 9 through 10 said, And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him, and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? So the picture of the woman becomes clear for us. Jacob's the sun... His wife, Rachel, is the moon, and the 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel that come from Jacob's 12 sons. The reason there's 11 in Genesis 37 is because Joseph is one of them, and and they're they're bowing to him in his dream. So the story is picturing, the the, the story from, from Revelation 12 is picturing the tribulation during which the nation of Israel flees from the world and from the Antichrist into the wilderness for three and a half years which is 1,203 score, 1, score days. That's 1,260 days, which if you have 360-day years, as, as the nation of Israel did, then that's three and a half years. And at that time, the travail that's leading up to the day of the Lord, when he comes back to rule and reign for 1,000 years. So that is the time of travail that, that Paul is really pointing at with 1 Thessalonians 5. That's the connections you make when you start seeing one phrase used in another place in the Bible, you can get a clearer understanding when you compare Scripture with Scripture like that. But this travail isn't just for the nation of Israel. It's travail for everyone on earth. And it's destruction for all nations. And just like 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, they shall not escape. But remember, the they in our passage tonight is not the we in our passage, those of us who have been saved. 
Those are two different groups of people. The they is referring to lost people, those without hope. Those are the people who will not be able to escape this sudden destruction, pain, and travail. We, on the other hand, well, that's a different story in point two, and that's we're separated to watch. And we can see that separation in verses four and five, which say, but ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And so note the way verse four starts. But ye, brethren. So Paul's switching gears back to believers after being, uh, being focused on unbelievers in verse three. That might seem obvious, but it's important to note because of what he says in verses four and five and the fact that that's contrasting believers from what he said about unbelievers in verse three. And he mentions at least two ways that we're different from, two ways that we're distinct from, two ways that we're separated from those without hope. And the first way we're separated is letter A, we're separated from that specific travail. Like we talked about, that specific travail, the specific destruction that he's referring to in verse three is the tribulation. That's clear once we compare scripture with scripture and make those connections. But we, as believers, don't have to experience that travail or that destruction. That doesn't mean we won't experience any travail or any destruction, just not the specific stuff that he was referencing with the tribulation. That's the point Paul was making at the end of chapter 4, by the way. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so to them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Verse 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. So the coming of the Lord is is a more complex thing than we think sometimes because what Paul's describing here in 1 Thessalonians 4, we typically refer to that as the rapture of the church. Now, you don't see the word rapture in Scripture, but it refers to Jesus pulling, out of the world, pulling us out of the world before he actually lands on the planet. And so don't miss the details here. Living believers, those that are alive and remain, on the planet are caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So don't forget, the second coming of the Lord is when Jesus comes down from heaven to earth to rule and reign as king on the earth. Well, part of his coming involves him coming down to the clouds to get us before he comes all the way down to earth. And Paul tells the believers that they can be comforted by that. And the reason why they can be comforted by that is because this is what prevents that day of travail from that day of destruction from overtaking them. And you can see what the Bible means when it uses the word overtake. If you look back in Deuteronomy 19, so a quick bit of history, I'm not going to get into this because it's cool, but in the Old Testament, if you accidentally killed someone, a friend or family member of that person you killed, well, they could try to kill you. Um, it was, that, was, that was like the law. He was called the avenger of blood and he could chase after you and kill you and, and be right according to the law um, in, in doing that. And the only way to protect yourself would be to flee to the nearest city of refuge. There were a handful of cities of refuge where you could go and you could 
live in that city and be safe from the avenger of blood, but you'd have to stay in that city until the high priest died for you to be able to leave and that person not be allowed to kill you. It's actually a really cool picture of Jesus forgiving our sins. Um, But man, you'd be running from this avenger of blood because he'd be trying to catch up to you and kill you before you got out of the city of refuge or before you got to the city of refuge because once you were there, he wasn't allowed to kill you unless you left. Well, look at what Deuteronomy 19.6 says. It says, lest the avenger of blood pursue the slayer. In this story, you're the slayer. You're the one who accidentally killed someone. Lest the avenger of blood pursue the slayer while his heart is hot and overtake him because the way is long and slay him whereas he was not worthy of death inasmuch as he hated him not in time past. So in the Bible, the word overtake refers to someone catching up to you. That's what the avenger of blood was trying to do. They were trying to catch you so that they could slay you. Well, the avenger of blood overtakes the slayer when he makes it to the same location where the slayer is currently. Well, this terrible stuff that Paul's talking about that lost people will have to deal with, the stuff that biblically points to the tribulation, the stuff, that stuff's not going to overtake us as believers. And you might not think it won't overtake us just because we're not looking for it, but, or just because we are looking for it, but let's be honest, most believers today aren't looking for it. Most believers are happy just going about their lives, not paying attention to what time it is or doing what God asks us to do with what little time we have left. Not every Christian is acting like a watchman. But the grace and mercy of God is such that even the laziest of Christians will be spared from his wrath. And one primary way that he'll do that is the rapture of the church. That specific time of travail and destruction won't overtake us because we won't be here for it. It won't catch up to us. It won't be in the same place as we are. God will spare those believers who are alive at the time by pulling them off the planet before God's wrath is poured out on those without hope through travail and destruction. But like I mentioned earlier, that doesn't mean we will never have to suffer travail or destruction or persecution as Christians. In fact, the Bible tells us we have to. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that, live, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So don't think our future as Christians on this planet is going to be all cushy and comfortable uh, just because we get to escape the worst of things. On the contrary, if you're going to do what God asks you to do, if you're living godly, man, I believe we're going to suffer more and more as we get closer to the day of the Lord. We've just been separated from that specific travail, not travail in general. Hopefully that difference is clear. But that's not the only thing I want to look at in these verses. Um, let's look at letter B. We're separated because of who we are. Because as believers, like Paul says, we're the children of light and we're the children of the day. And both of those things point to us being the children of God now that we've been saved by the blood of Christ. That is who we are now. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 5 through 6, he says, John says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declaring to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how we are in him, about how we are in Christ. Well, he's light, and there's no darkness in him, and we are in him. That's why the Bible tells us we're children of light. But we're also children of the day, and that makes sense if we remember that Jesus is the light of the world that determines when it's daytime. Second Peter 1.19 says, We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. 
Well, Jesus is the day star that rises and determines when it's the day. And because we're in him, we're children of the day. So we're children of light, we're children of the day. And because of who we are, we've been separated from darkness. It's hard to be a child of light that exists in darkness. We've been separated from the people of the night. We've been separated from the darkness. Nick actually touched on this uh, last week, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. But as a, as a reminder, let's read 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fresh, fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having, conversation, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may buy your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We're to be strangers and pilgrims in this world because this world isn't our home. We're in Christ, so our home is with him. And we've talked tonight about how he's coming for us. Our home is coming for us. That's obviously good for us, but, but it's not so good for those without hope. So the fact that we're separated from them means we have to warn them about that coming travail, destruction, and judgment. And unless they become children of God like us before it arrives, there will be no escape for them. And man, the, the coming of the day of the Lord is getting closer and closer with, with each passing day. So we're running out of time to warn them. And that brings us to point three, which, so, let's watch. Uh, verse six says, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Man, Paul tells us to wake up so we can watch and be sober. He tells us to wake up and be watchmen. And the first important thing I don't want you to miss here, I thought it was so important that I put it on your sheet. We shouldn't be asleep like others are. And yes, some of those others who are asleep are lost people. And we've spent this entire series talking about our duty to warn them as God's watchmen so that they can respond to the warning. But unfortunately, some of those others who are sleeping are going to be believers. Unfortunately, we Christians can be sleeping as well. That's clear in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. It says, "In that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than, we believe, nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and unwantedness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And sometimes we just allow ourselves to get so comfortable in our life that, that we fall asleep. We stop watching for the Lord's return. We stop watching for the souls of people who need to hear the gospel. We stop living like we've been separated from the darkness, and we just start living like we're ordinary people with ordinary lives. We just can't do that. We need to wake up. The night is almost over, and we're running out of time. Jesus caught his disciples sleeping on the eve of his death instead of praying like they asked him to in Luke 22. Man, will he catch you sleeping on the eve of his return instead of watching like he asked you to do? Man, that's the ultimate point Paul's making in this message. Instead of staying asleep, let's wake up and watch. The point is, we don't know exactly when Jesus is coming back. Maybe it's during your lifetime, maybe it's not. The Bible tells us we don't know. Matthew 24, 42 says, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour, the Lord, what hour your Lord doth come. But man, that's why we need to stop wasting, wasting time and understand the urgency of what God's asked us to do. 
we have to watch with urgency because we don't know how much time we have left. So we need to use what little time we have wisely. We need to leave it all in the field. Look, I believe with all my heart that Jesus could potentially return to us, return for us at any moment. Some people might disagree with me, but, but I think it's fair to say we can all agree we're running out of time regardless. And we, at the end of the day, we don't know. And at the end of the day, I'd rather have thought my entire life that Jesus could be coming back the next day and lived like it than get to the end of, or then, then have him show up in the middle of my life and I just wasted the first half of it. And we've been reading through 2 Peter 3 throughout tonight's message. We've been referring to it uh, on, on several occasions. But let's keep reading that in verses 11 and 13 in 2 Peter 3. It says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth, uh, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So man, the point is, because we know all the things of this world are temporary and will soon come to an end, they'll be dissolved is what it says. All these things shall be dissolved. And shouldn't we be working as hard as we can for the Lord and his things as the day approaches? Rather than wasting our time on temporary stuff that we know is going away sooner rather than later. I mean, shouldn't we be focused on eternal stuff that is going to make a difference that lasts forever? If we, if we temporarily put aside some of the things that we want to do and start being God's watchman, and we can make an eternal difference in the life of someone else. Somebody can literally be in heaven with God because you took the time to share the gospel with them. 2 Timothy 2 uh, tells us in verses 12 through 13, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. So man, look, if we suffer, we reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Getting to, God, getting to escape God's wrath and spend forever with Jesus in eternity is unconditional as long as you've accepted Jesus' payment for your sins. You don't have to earn that because he's already earned it for you. That said, please understand that reigning with him, that's very conditional. You have to earn that reward and you earn it by suffering, by putting your desires on the back burner so you can do what the Lord asks you to do. And he asks us to be his watchman. He asks us to use what little time we have, what little time we have left to warn others about the coming danger that the Bible clearly communicates to us. But man, God wants to reward us for doing that. But we have to understand what time it is. We have to understand that the night is almost over and the coming of the Lord, or the coming of the day of the Lord is soon. We have to not only understand the importance of our task, but we have to understand the urgency of it as well. Man, we just only have so much time and only so many opportunities. So as we wrap up this message and with it this series, just consider how awake you really are. Are you asleep and unresponsive? Well, the answer is simple. It's time to wake up. We've got work to do. Are you finding yourself dozing off from time to time? Well, it's time to grab your spiritual coffee so you can let the Holy Spirit keep you awake until he comes back. Do what you got to do to stay awake, man. Our job is too important on an eternal scale to fall asleep now. And our job is too ur urgent to quit early. We only have so much time left. So let's just commit to staying strong until the very end. Think about it. What if your next chance to share the gospel was your last chance? It just might be. You don't know what a day brings. The Bible's clear on that. 
The person you're sharing the gospel with may not live another day. You may not live another day. Jesus may not wait another day to return. What if it's your last chance? What if today's your last day to take advantage of opportunities God's given you? Man, don't miss it. Don't miss it. You don't want to walk into heaven. Well, you want to walk into heaven and see Jesus, but you don't want to know that the most recent opportunity you had, you blew it because you were asleep. Man, let's know what time it is, and let's realize we've been separated from the world. Let's do our job as God's watchmen by warning as many people as possible about the coming judgment and telling them the the only information they need, the, the, only infor- the only source of information that they can have to know what they can do about it. Man, all they got to do is accept the gospel, but they need to know it first, and that's our job is to help them know it. We want to do our part and make sure they're on the right side when the time comes, or at least have the opportunity to be on the right side. We owe it to them to give them a chance to respond to the gospel because somebody gave us the gospel. But we owe it to our Lord and Savior to be obedient. And at the end of the day, man, that's what being God's watchman is about. It's about faithfully being obedient to what God's called all of us to do. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, man, just how clear you are in your word with your expectations of us. And um, Man, you even give us clues on, on your plans that, that we don't deserve. But man, understanding uh, what your plans are and understanding where the earth is headed I mean, there's a lot of people who need to be warned. And we're grateful for what your plans are. We, we, don't, we certainly don't deserve you ruling and reigning. Like, the, the governments of this world are as corrupt as they can be. But man, having a government with the God of the universe at, at the center of it, uh, ruling as, as, as love and as light, it's, it's an amazing thing for us to think about. But Lord, we know that it's, it's not necessarily a pretty picture for those who stand against you. And because of that, man, we understand it's our job to share the gospel with people so that they can, they can be standing with you instead of against you. Because uh, at the end of the day, Lord, that's, that's really all that matters. And so we just ask that you continue to weigh on our hearts the urgency of our task and, and the urgency of, of just having to act now and, and not waste time and not, not stay asleep, Lord. It's time for us to wake up. So I pray that we would. I pray that we'd be diligent and I pray that you bring opportunities in our life uh, for us to share the gospel and invest in the lives of other people that, that could be investments into eternity uh, for all we know. Lord, at the end of the day, we know that you're faithful and you're the one who brings the increase and your word is what does all the work. Um, but man, you chose to use us. And so we just want to commit to being used by you. In your name we pray, amen.